Welcome to Rethinking with Alex Torpy. It's been a little while since I posted here, and a large part uh, that's because I've been settling into living in New Hampshire and Vermont, uh, and my new job as a town manager in Hanover, New Hampshire. And if you want to hear what we're up to there, lots of interesting stuff. We actually have a town podcast called The Hanover Happenings that you can find uh, online. Now, in this episode of Rethinking, we drink some cool, refreshing millennial nostalgia and talk about the values and assumptions built into our technology, tracing some important differences from platforms like AOL Instant Messenger to the always-on devices that pervade nearly all corners of the world today. We talk about how differing designs and technology impact our own abilities, such as the difference between learning how to navigate by using a compass and a map versus a GPS system. And we think about the three-tier red-yellow-green system that was implicitly built into AIM as a framework to help us create more uniform social norms about how we communicate with each other or how present we are in what we're doing or how productive we are at work. There's lots of relevant reflections that come out when tracing our social communication technology and how it's changed in the last 25 years. Now, you can find all the episodes of Rethinking at RethinkingWithAlexTorpy.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy. We all remember AOL Instant Messenger, or at least some of you listening will, especially those of you part of the most golden era of generations, the millennials who grew up largely without and then with today's technology. We are the grizzled old souls who used payphones to make calls on the go, Uh, and had to awkwardly talk to your friends or romantic interest parents when you called their house phone. If we didn't know some information we needed, well, you better be gosh darn familiar with Melville Dewey's legacy to be able to find out more. And then we lived through the beginning and growth of the internet. And this started with loud and slow dial-up modems, AOL free trial CD-ROMs seemingly everywhere you looked, floppy disks that at one point were actually floppy, and Oregon's uh, trail on school computers, Ask Jeeves, Netscape, and the very much missed indestructible Nokia cell phones. We saw unbelievable increases in computer storage, speed, connectivity, and the advent of file sharing services like Napster and K++, and the teenage angst and content sharing services like LiveJournal and good old Tom's MySpace For those of us who went to college and then got a .edu email address, you could then access the exciting and somewhat private world of Facebook before news feeds, crazy ads, and the whole world participating. We saw the creation and rise and then ubiquity of these always-on devices and always-on services, moving into text messaging, mobile internet access, and eventually the types of smartphones that we have now. But I can remember having a social life or what amounted to that for me, without the existence of almost a single piece of technology we use today. And actually, considering that I don't have a landline, I guess it's accurate to say that social life without a single piece of technology used today. And I remember each of these different phases or milestones of what we've kind of come along to get to where we are today, which is always on interconnected devices that basically pervade the daily functioning of the entire world almost no matter how remote or rural you live. And just a side note, the truly mind-blowing transition in technology that we've seen in the short amount of time, you know, going from entire rooms that had less memory storage than what can fit on a micro SD card smaller than a fingernail, what it actually has been. I mean, we get desensitized to changes that creep up incrementally. And it's really worth reflecting on the timescales here. 
And remembering that, you know, just about 25 years ago, there were basically no always on internet devices for general consumers. And in that time period, you know, where an average tree might grow 20, 30, 40 feet, where we had maybe six or seven presidential elections out of the 60 or so in the short lifetime of the U.S., all of that technological advancement happened in that time, from nothing to dial up to always on. Almost worldwide existence of fiber optic, 4 and 5G, satellite-based high-speed internet, connecting everything down to watches, cars, and refrigerators. So in this episode, I want to get all nostalgic and whatnot for a minute and reflect on a few important points about some of these transitions and why we actually have some lessons to be learned or remembered from these, um, you know, kind of more primitive internet days and how we might conceptualize some healthier and more intentional frameworks for how we allocate our attention to the things around us and how we communicate with each other in our personal or professional lives. Now, there was something particularly great about AIM or AIM or AOL Instant Messenger. There was a few things about it that were great. Now, I've used the phrase always on a few times so far when describing a device, and it's not accidental. It has kind of two different layers of meanings, one about the device and then one about our behavior. The device side of it is relatively obvious, right? Our devices are basically always connected to each other. Back in the dial-up modem days, you not only were paying for every minute you used, but you had to actually sign on to access the internet, and it was kind of a loud and slow process you actually had to connect into. Something about things moving through pipes, I don't know. But most people's internet these days is always on. Even with prepaid data plans for cell phones, most data plans don't turn off your data when you hit a cap. They just throttle it down to a slower speed. And as someone who frequently spends time, voluntarily or not, without internet or cell phone service in backcountry areas or traveling, there is a pretty real expectation built into most of the hardware and software products and services today that the product or service will be primarily or entirely connected to the internet for it to be able to function. This has been a constant thorn because there are many programs and devices that really do struggle or fail when they aren't connected to the internet, making working offline, which actually has some huge productivity and creativity benefits, much harder than it really needs to be. And this assumption, the simple fact that there is a cultural default to being connected, which then gets translated into the values built into the hardware and software we design and use, this is part of the problem that we are exploring a bit here. Now, I can imagine a phone, for example, that is designed to be primarily disconnected and only connected at certain times to sync or something like that. And that would be a very different device than what most of us have. And I'll put it this way. Spotify, the streaming music service, which has over 80 million users in the U.S. alone, by default, every time you open the app and are on airplane mode, every time you go back into it, it will pop up that you have to click or dismiss, reminding you to turn your connection back on to access the Internet. So there are some settings that you can change there and put it into an offline mode, but again, uh, very different than, for example, my old iPod, a device built to be basically self-sufficient to function in the way that it was meant to, and which nearly 20 years later somehow still works, but it only expected to be connected to the outside world in sort of a periodic fashion, and it was fully functional outside of that. That was the default. And so those are two very different assumptions um, 
on sort of a similar kind of device or use. Now, the second layer to the always on is the behavioral or human side of it. You know, these days we as people in a connected social world are always on or on by default. Although there's a variation among many subgroups, there are broadly held expectations in the U.S. and in much of the world that our phone or device is basically with us and within reach almost all of the time. And furthermore, that the device is charged and on, uh, connected, and that we'll generally be able to respond to things that our device may ask or notify us about within some pretty quick time period. Sometimes those are notifications from other humans reaching out to us, but more and more, they are notifications from some algorithm or application that has decided that we need to pay attention to something, usually because the business model of the thing is, is literally built on getting us to look at advertising. And it's worth remembering that the customer of many of these services like Facebook are the advertisers, the companies who pay Facebook lots of money, not us who are really more like the product, or more specifically our attention, which is the product that's bought and sold for the paying customers, the advertisers. Now, Facebook has bragged about always being committed to being free, and but that's not really something to be proud of necessarily because the users of the platform aren't the customers, and it would be kind of a silly business model to prevent people from becoming a product. Um, and so the more attention in the ecosystem, if you're an advertising uh, broker, then the better. Um, so we've danced around different frameworks for things like a do not disturb, but those functions on most devices are kind of surprisingly not that intuitive or simple to use. So we see these values translated into various areas of our lives beyond technology as well, such as how we work and the culture of kind of always being interruptible without a thought uh, paid to that. And that's not a great culture in a lot of organizations that can really harm productivity or creativity and can challenge interpersonal relationships and dynamics. And it sort of feeds into this very highly distractive culture that most people are in. And the way that our devices function and vie for our attention is a really big part of that. And this is all very different from the way that it used to work. Back in my day, in the early internet days, which personally I will admit I'm often very nostalgic for. And this is because with uh, services like AIM, you could basically be in only one of three states. One, online and available. Two, online or and away or idle. And three, it was offline. Now, there were definitely some people who were always shown as available, even if they weren't there. And there were some people who always had away messages up, even if they were there. You know who you are. But to be online, you largely had to make the deliberate choice to do so. And there wasn't an expectation for most of the time that you could be online and available to answer a chat at any time of the day, though that did start to change at some point. But at least for many of us uh, in the beginning, especially for a bulk of the day, we just weren't able to be connected and online and available to chat. You know, we spent a pretty significant amount of our lives in that age group uh, in school and mobile devices didn't really have at that point the ability to connect into those kind of systems early on, um, even if you had one. But there were other reasons why you might not be around to chat because other than being in school and not really having a device that could connect to the Internet. Maybe because you were a kid and you were hanging out with people, you know, IRL in real life or you're out playing a sport or doing some activity. 
you know, or maybe somebody else was using the one computer in your house or they were on the phone so you couldn't connect to the Internet. So there were lots of times when you weren't available to chat, which has both an impact on the chatting culture, but also how present we are or aren't in the other activities that we do, which is something I'll come a little bit back to. Now, if you were totally offline, people had to wait till you came back online to contact you. And if you were online but away, you know, messages would queue up if you had an away message up and you could answer when you were back or if you felt like it or if it was that, you know, one crush that you were waiting for. And if you were online and talking to people, you were usually somewhat present in that process. You were actively engaged in the activity of chatting, often with multiple people, whether friends or in uh, those good old AOL chat rooms. ASL, anyone? But you are generally actively engaged in the chatting process, maybe watching TV, maybe doing other things in the background, but you'd made an intentional decision to chat with people. And that was often because to do so, you had to sit at a stationary desktop computer somewhere in your house that had to be signed on and off of. Now, today is worlds apart from that, really. Most of us are living our daily lives, and not just in the U.S., but in much of the world, even in many remote and rural areas, with a device on our person at all times, and that device is always on if there's a signal. And within that device, there are several, if not dozens or more, different ways that someone can contact you or that some algorithm or application can try to grab your attention. And really, I don't think in our culture, at least, we don't really have explicit standardized norms about what's acceptable or expected or not in all of this. Yet there is a change being driven in how we use things and how that influences our behavior. And the frequent mismatches between sort of our expectations and capacities and the devices and platforms that we use are leading to more and more or contributing at least to more and more um, friction or confusion or anxiety, which we're seeing pop up more and more, especially in a number of mental health perspectives, especially with younger folks. But I would also argue that this dynamic is one of the predominant dynamics that is contributing to the change and the degradation of our larger uh, ability to engage in political or civic conversation as well. Now, for many millennials, I think we see these issues play out with kind of different perspectives and we see different expectations um, you know, among different generations in workplaces or as, you know, folks continue to grow older and how people form and relate to family and friends and partners and coworkers. And with younger folks like in Gen Z, I think we're seeing some of these sorts of issues play out in significant in some similar and some different ways with how pervasive technology is in their lives from a much younger age than what was uh, available for us and just how that's impacting Uh, social norms and mental health and cultural expectations. Now, honestly, I really do feel incredibly lucky to have grown up largely without technology, you know, where you might make plans with someone days ahead of time and, you know, keep them. Um, And there was no general expectation that another person, you know, might cancel uh, because perhaps they had a little anxiety that day. They went on TikTok and they saw someone's diseased, sick dog who couldn't stand up in the morning. And so based on seeing that, they decided to take it easy and not really do anything adventurous. Now, I didn't make that up. That's a real thing that I don't know if hundreds of thousands or millions of people watch on TikTok. Uh, You can look it up. It's called Bones or No Bones Day. 
So we're trying to adapt. And because we aren't being totally honest or intentional on a broader level, we aren't doing it very well. Our bodies and brains were not built for this kind of change in those short of time frames. And we've never lived literally within one generation with this kind of access to other people and information at all times. Evolutionary history that changes our biology takes place over tens and hundreds of thousands and millions of years. And even cultural changes often take place over generations. But we are changing massive aspects of our lives in months, years, and sometimes even just hours or days when certain events play out in the world and we shift like a school of fish into a new position without being totally aware or intentional about what we're doing. And there's a good sort of analogy here, I think. So in the human body, though I'm not 100% uh, exactly sure how this all works, but it's through an interestingly mechanical system in your inner ear, you are able to, most people, most of the time, generally regulate your balance and, you know, keep your body oriented and upright as you kind of navigate throughout the world. And one weird thing about this is that there is an angle of tilt sideways, that once your body starts leaning past a certain point, it sends a pretty clear signal straight up to your brain to upright yourself so you don't fall over. And in fact, most of us are probably familiar with something like this if you've ever leaned too far back in a chair and you instantly became aware and reacted to that feeling of crossing over the threshold where you might fall down. Usually that happens without conscious thinking. People react by throwing out your arms or legs or moving your body forward to correct the imbalance. Really, again, before you're even aware it's happening. Nice reflexes. Now, thinking about that, you can probably imagine why in the emergency medical service world, when transporting a patient in a carrying device such as a backboard or chair down, uh, say, a set of stairs, we like to buckle folks in with their arms inside of the straps, not on the outside. Now, one of the things you have to do when, when you're learning to ride a motorcycle is how to manage this reaction a little bit. You can't allow your body to react and upright yourself when leaning into a turn, but our bodies are sort of built to do that. Maybe from days of riding animals or from our time in trees, I'm not sure what the research says about the origins of um, these mechanisms, but if you imagine yourself riding on the back of a motorcycle with no prior training or really any awareness of a motorcycle or uh, you know physics or anything like that, and if, and if it started to lean over... There's a certain point where you're going to feel like you're falling and you're going to want to grab onto something or adjust yourself to try and uh, move it upright. And if you're riding the motorcycle, like if you're um, driving it, you might want to slow down or stop, which is the opposite of what you want to do. And as you learn to ride, you're sort of taught how to address these reactions and you kind of have to learn how to suppress it or be conscious of it. So that in, so if you feel like you might be falling over, for example, in like a low speed maneuver, the right reaction is to actually increase the speed, which uh, increases the force applied forward and on something like a bike that actually uprights it. So you kind of have to suppress this natural reaction to use this modern tool, because up until recently, there was really nothing in our lives that that could move like that and that we had to adjust to. And I would argue that much of our technology that we use sort of happens in a same or, or the simil or similar sort of way. It's something that doesn't have um, a historical uh, precedent such that to effectively use the technology, we need to overcome some sort of predisposition or we don't. And we kind of continue to create issues because we're falling off the motorcycle or something like that.
And sometimes we don't overcome those predispositions um, and we end up creating negative side effects with the technology that we use. And so using calculators has made us generally worse at math. Spell check has made us worse at spelling. And GPFs and uh, pervasive kind of mapping systems uh, have made us worse at navigating our environments. But they don't have to. Um, some folks call the differences in how we integrate with a technology in this way either a competitive cognitive artifact or a complementary cognitive artifact. And so what this means is using an abacus will, uh, as a way to do better math or more complex math, by using it, you'll be able to do a little bit more uh, while you're using it. But when you stop using it, you're actually a little better than when you started because you had to do real math to take advantage of the tool. A calculator, on the other hand, allows you to be ridiculously better at math while using it, but it makes you then worse when you're not using it anymore. Now, I remember thinking that GPS technology you know, like 20 years ago, navigation systems and cars, that was going to make everybody amazing at navigating the world. But it's made people so much worse. They're so reliant on those technologies and not developing the skills in parallel with that. So these are example of competitive. They give you a huge boost while using it, but then you actually become worse when you don't have access to it anymore. And in contrast are complementary, such as learning how to use a compass, which will allow you to do a little bit better navigating while using it. But then when you're not able to access the compass, you'll still be a little bit better than you were when you started because you had to learn skills in parallel with the tool to get the benefit. And sometimes I wonder if our social technology isn't having the same sort of effect. Our instant and frequent and rapid response communication sort of makes us better at communicating, maybe you could argue, while we're using it. At least it certainly allows us to do more of it. But then when people don't have that technology, are they better or worse or the same at communicating IRL? I might argue that people are actually getting a little bit worse um, and that this sort of reliance on the technology and the ways that technology uh, makes you communicate, for example, text messaging, losing the sound of somebody's voice or not being able to see their body language might mean that if much of your communication, especially at a younger age, is through a platform like that, that you're going to actually develop less uh, skill at doing something like reading body language. And so I think these things could have really significant uh, impacts on sort of our behavior and our culture. So I think next time you're using a piece of technology, it's kind of worth thinking about the difference between competitive and complementary. Um, is this thing helping you learn the thing or is it helping you achieve immediate improved results? I think there's a lot in our world that mixes these things up, um, especially, I would say, in our healthcare system um, and the way that we think about uh, medicine and the management or how we address um, people with chronic medical conditions. Do we look for immediate benefit, but a long-term reliance on the thing to continue to get that benefit? Or do we look for making small improvements, but improvements that don't, that then aren't reliant on some outside tool or mechanism to help us do better? We internalize those uh, improvements. So anyway, I think we're chasing after all of these sorts of changes and we're trying to adapt to them, but we're not doing a great job of really being honest or using nuance in identifying, admitting, or just sort of talking about the downsides 
or side effects of some of these new and changing technologies. We're just sort of barreling forward. So we're not planning these things out, though we could, because I think that at a few points, there's been smart people who have, you know, raised valid and reasonable questions, but the larger sort of uh, momentum of our culture doesn't really seem to care. So instead, we're then put in a position where we have to react after the fact. And we know how poorly that kind of policymaking uh, is. And we see the growing problems with our use of social media and always-on technology, especially among younger generations and mental health. And we see, I think, very little in real response to that. I mean, there's a reason we created legislative bodies to try and make policy ahead of time, and we don't only rely on a ju judicial system to make decisions for us. We need to be more proactive, and we do have frameworks for it, but we just don't really seem to be able to do so um, with the kind of technology that we integrate into our lives. So towards that end, one of the ideas um, or solutions that I would love to kind of see a little more talked about um, is, is the idea of a standardized set of cultural norms that could then get built into all of the technology, the hardware and the software that we use. Something that is made intentionally based on maximizing the wellness and the goals of the users, not maximizing the goal of the company. This would be something that we as users or people in the world would talk about and decide on, not necessarily the company's uh, designers. And these are the folks who studied gambling addictions and how people used casinos and used intentionally that same exact technology to make the newsfeed that we see online now. They're not the ones who are going to think about how these changes impact us um, and the users kind of from maximizing our goals and wellness standpoint. I'm not exactly sure who all the right stakeholders are, but broadly, it, it, it would be a set of standards driven by the users of these uh, products and platforms, not by the designers of them. I think that's a good lesson for a number of fields, government included. Now, this could actually be something really simple. And maybe just based off of this uh, sort of not uncommon three-tiered uh, status system that uh, AIM actually sort of mimicked, though I'm not sure it did so on purpose. And I'm seeing this three-tier system used in more workplaces as well as sort of a better way to manage sort of open or closed-door policies. And basically what it provides is the following three levels. One, not interruptible. Two, can be interrupted, but really only if needed. Three, open to or encouraging of interruption. And this is really similar to the AIM statuses. Not interruptible is offline. Can be interrupted if needed is online but away. And open or encouraging of interruption was being online. It's a basic sort of green, yellow, red system that we already have plenty of mental models for. So it's not like some sort of really complicated new thing that our brain has to learn. There's a lot in our world that works this way already. Why not translate that to kind of how we communicate or how our devices interact with us? And I think you could map this sort of three-tier system in other ways too. For example, with the timing or urgency of a, um, of a reply to a message that you might send somebody else, right? There could be one, no expectation or need for an immediate response. Maybe something like sharing a news article or an interesting book. Number two, an expectation of a soon response if possible, maybe an inquiry into talking more or something happening soon. Number three, in need of an immediate response. Maybe you're meeting somewhere, uh, someone somewhere right now or there's some sort of emergency happening. But we don't really do that, at least in an intentional way. For example, in, instead of having more kind of explicit or direct conversations about 
something like timeliness of responses to messages, we tend to do this implicitly through some of the different platforms that we use. For example, most people would expect a paper letter through the mail to generate a slower response than an uh, email message, and that's a slower response than a phone call or a text. Each communication platform and hardware and software product has some expectations built into it, but the problem is that, one, they're not really as standardized as we think, um, and there are differences between individuals and differences between groups. And number two, the expectations are often set by those who do not have our best interest in mind, such as the owners of an advertising platform on which the messaging platform is based. And number three, we often don't do a good job of integrating our own values into these standards. So again, we're sort of reacting rather than proacting. We could probably think of many different frameworks that could integrate with a type of scale or system like this. And having something standardized, maybe color-coded, that was translatable easily from our cultural values to our devices and their settings could make a really big difference in setting us all up for success and ensuring that what we're doing on a sort of daily basis and the ways that our behaviors and norms are changing are actually aligned with our values um, and being done in, in an intentional fashion, which is really the kind of whole fun theme of this podcast. So we talked a bit about how glorious it was to grow up as a mid-range millennial and how some of the earlier products and services that existed like AOL Instant Messenger actually had, in many ways, better values built into, uh, into them that allowed more standardized expectations about communication. And because of the necessity that the default was really off, which has changed dramatically in the last 25 years, and that has had and is still having yet unknown major lasting effects on our brains and our behaviors and our culture and our world. I suggested that one of the probably many ways that we could address that is hearkening back to our AIM days and more so integrating a three-tier red, yellow, green interruptible, interruptible if needed, and not interruptible sort of framework more into the hardware and software of our devices, but also into the hardware and software of ourselves and our communities and cultures and workplaces.